a mafia associate and a movie star who starred in some of the most iconic movies of all time? Sounds like a fictional character. Buckle on up as you are about to hear from one of the most fascinating real life people whose true stories you just can't make up. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast and get ready to be inspired, motivated, and achieve massive success. And now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest today is known as the Hollywood Godfather, which also happens to be the name of his book. In that book, he candidly talks about his life in the mob, as well as his glorious movie career, starring in the Godfather 1 and 2 movies. Wait till you hear some of the incredible people he palled around with, including some of the infamous ladies he was, well, let's just say he was associated with. Welcome to the Motivation Show, Johnny Russo. Thank you for having me, man. Yeah, you're the motivator. <laughs> well, I have a feeling you're going to motivate a lot of people here today as well, and we're going to have a good time. I'm pretty fascinated by your world, so I want to get right into it. Uh, so can you tell us about where you grew up, Johnny, and what were the circumstances and motivations that led you to being a mafia associate? Well, I can give you a, a, a fast preview of that. In 1949... August 7th, to be exact. I was up until that day, I was six, uh, five and a half, six on Mulberry Street. And then I wound up in Bellevue, quarantined for the next five years with polio. And the only thing I had to entertain me at the time, it's not like hospital beds today with televisions and all that, was a transistor radio that a nurse brought in. And it was just before my birthday, I was getting depressed. I was born December 12th. I turn on the radio, and it's all about Frank Sinatra being born the same day. Long story short, becomes a mentor to me, a singing teacher. And from that, we just kept moving step by step. I met a guy that he knew called Frank Costello. I was selling ballpoint pens in front of the Sherry Netherlands. On Fifth Avenue, <laughs> a very upscale hotel. Ninth Street, yeah. And he used to go there every day for, for shoe shines. Every morning he was there. Give me some money. Give me words of advice. Never took a pen. I used to wait for this guy every day. He'd give me $5, sometimes $10. <laughs> Only to find out he knew a relative of mine. And I stayed with Costello until 73, until he died. And in fact, this room I'm sitting in behind me is a, a dining room table. It's at 16. And it's on the Upper East Side that he gave me. <laughs> I walked in here. 74 years ago. I'm no, 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 that's I'm wrong about that. I, I was I was 13, so that would be 67. 67, yeah. Wow, that's a long time ago. Yeah. And if only that table can talk, right? So oh my God, I'd be indicted <laughs> again. <laughs> so uh Johnny Mafia Associate sounds like a, a PG version of being part of the mob, if that was even possible uh, are you able to discuss exactly what being a mafia associate actually entailed well yeah and that's why i never got locked up and, and and they made sure him and carlo gambino made sure that 
that's all I am, was a messenger. In fact, as I got older, I'll tell you how sharp they were. As I got older, in like 17, 18, he retained a lawyer for me. I had my, you know, a letter and $5,000 in cash. I met this guy at the, uh, we used to meet at the Waldorf every morning at 11 o'clock. And uh, I sat down with this guy and he read this and there was a couple of copies of paper. I saw there was a, a, a wrapper of 5,000. I saw so much wrappers during that time. And I signed it and he signed it. He said, really, you know what we just did, don't you? I said, no, you just retained me as your lawyer. So anything we talk about from now on is client privilege. Mm -hmm. And that happened in Chicago when I met Ocado. That happened with the Savellas in Kansas City. These guys really protected me. And uh, I was a messenger. So that's that's my definition of an associate. <laughs> well, you know, it seemed like in the old days, uh, Johnny, no one dared to cross the so-called line and break the mafia code of silence. Uh, then it seemed like a lot of wise guys, you know, uh, the Henry Hills, you know, who, oh of course, for those that know who was famously portrayed in the Goodfellas movie, uh, started to sing like canaries and enter witness uh, protection programs. What are your thoughts about the code of silence? Well, that, I know why that happened. I mean, most people up until that time, the, the wise guys would say, I'd do 10 years on my head because they didn't lose anything. But it was J JFK, I mean, not JFK, uh, his brother, Robert, when he became attorney general, that law was in effect, but they never used it, called RICO. And the RICO definition is once you get locked up for that, they come and take all the assets that you acquired through the mob, meaning your house, your wife, your family, all on the street. That's why these guys started flipping. So our mirth that went out the window. And everybody became, like you're saying, singing canaries. And Valachi and Henry Hill. I could name all of them that. I mean, even even Sammy the Bull, who has a podcast now. I can't believe this guy. That, but he has a big following because everybody's enamored with the mob. It's it's crazy. It is true, right? Everybody's just got Henry Hill out of following. And, uh, and now he's got the following. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And people can't get enough of the... Uh, the movies and the books. Uh, and speaking of books, I mean, you've put out uh, two books. I tell you, I'm, I'm reading uh, your first one. I, it's impossible to put it down. I'm not just saying this to Apple polish you, but it's like you know, every twist and turn is like a movie. It's and, coming from you. That's a big accolade. Yeah. <laughs> I've read a lot of books. <laughs> my first book. I know. I, I read up on you. But I mean, coming from you, that's a big, big compliment. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, so you know, your you first one is titled "The Hollywood Godfather." Uh, I love the subtitle there: "My Life in the Movies and the Mob." You know, <laughs> two two very <laughs> uh, different worlds, both M words, but very different worlds. So, right. what inspired you, Johnny, to do a tell-all memoir, or should I say, almost all? Well, what inspired me? I wrote that in '95, and my lawyers, who I I live by my lawyers, and they're basically mentors. And they said, you know, you got to wait a while because there's some certain statures that you're going to go to jail for writing this story. So with that said, I waited, and then it came out four years ago, and it's got over 5,000 five-star reviews, and they came to me to write more books. And with the guidance, again, of attorneys, not mentioning their names, they were all well-known, 
uh, we have a line which I think is interesting in the in the now writing novels that this is a novel, most of it's fiction, other than what's true. <laughs> yeah, that was your second book in there. I right, I right. saw that, uh, and uh, that was a great way to start it off. The second book is the the sixth family, a Johnny Russo novel, book one, and the cover. You know, interestingly enough, it reminds me of, of course, the original godfather book written by mario puzo right. um and it has that same feel but uh you know it's it's is that a play on words a, a, a johnny russo novel uh <laughs> well no what, what i've done i made a deal for four novels i'll mm-hmm. be i'll be having a novel out which i think is insane every six months there's a book coming out that yeah. is pretty insane yeah you're going to be busy <laughs> Well, you know what it is. I, uh, Pat Piccarelli, who's my my co-writer, and I went through a lot of a lot of people who wanted to write Dan Moldea, Nick Pileggi, Jagade Talese, the greatest guys in the, the world. Names, yeah, and uh, and Frank Wyman, who was my agent at the literary group, who I, who I found out supposedly the best agent in literary. Then he gave me this guy because I insulted a couple of people. I don't want to mention their name because I said, you know, what do you know about me? They said, well, you know, we, you know who I am. I said, of course I do. I said, would you mind writing like a brief synopsis of Johnny Russo? He said, are you kidding me? And this was Dan Muldeo who just did the Clinton book. And he said, you want me? I said, yeah. And he never talked to me again. Then Frank Wyman found this guy who, who's a professor now after being on the New York Police Department. And his last five years, he was at OCB. And when he called me up, because I like to talk to him, I want to feel you out. And I said, Pat, nice meeting you. He said, I know you. I said, how do you know me? He said, well, the last five years of my job, I was trying to arrest you. I love, <laughs> I love the guy immediately. <laughs> how things turned around. Yeah. And uh, here we are writing. He certainly knew enough about you to write about you, right? So. And he had that street language. His father owned a bar downtown that we know from Mulberry Street. And uh, thank God, because his books are amazing. And that's all we're getting in these great accolades. We're, we're in 73 countries. And uh, it's craziness. And I love it. Well, yeah, let's go back to your first book there. Because within a few pages, you're already like hooked. And uh, you could almost take like three pages at a time and write its own book and do its own movie. That's how interesting it is, uh, you know, starting with where you grew up. So tell us a little bit about uh, where you actually grew up and, you know, what were the uh, circumstances and motivations that you feel sort of led you to be this mafia associate? Well, it really wasn't. It was all by accident. Most of my life, as we peruse my life, it's all done by good luck and accidents. I'm in the right place. Good the dumb luck, huh? Good dumb luck. <laughs> good dumb luck, and I love it. No, but like you said, it. I, I was just an altar boy of precious blood going to church every morning with my grandmother. I'm six years old like any other kid. And then I get polio. And then I get put into a ward in Bellevue, a ward of the state of New York. And my nurse happens to be Dolores Barone, Carlo Gambino's niece. Now, I saw Uncle Carlo every day, but I didn't know who he was. What six-year-old knows who Carlo Gambino is? And all of that turned into good luck again or dumb luck is that 
my great uncle in Sicily, Angelo Russo, was responsible for sending a lot of people to America. And then Costello, who's buying, not even buying ballpoint pens, he didn't never took a pen. He'd give me words of wisdom, always touched my left side, because I didn't realize Sicilians were superstitious of touching cripples. I was still deformed on my left side. But that turned into a great relationship, because one day he asked me, what's your name? I told him. He said, who's Angelo Russo to you? I said, Angelo Russo, that's my great uncle on my grandfather's side. He said, when's the last time you saw him? I said, I never saw him. He said, why is that? I said, well, if you know him, you tell me. Now, this is me, 12 years old, talking. If your audience don't know who Frank Costello was, at that time, he was the head of the Genovese family and known as the ambassador. And he, he was with a guy who I thought was his friend. Blackie was his bodyguard. So long story short, I said, he said, I want you to tell me. And he got stern about it. I said, okay. Why didn't I see him? Because they hung him in 1948 in Sicily mm. when, they were, when they were reorganizing Locos and Ostra. So he said to Blackie, take his cigar box where I had my pens because I only had the right hand. So I had pens and, and money in that box. I said, you can't take my box. And he took a roll of money out. I've never seen that much money in my life. He gave me three $100 bills for about $10 worth of ballpoint pens. And that was history. And in those days, three Chris $100 bills added up. <laughs> Hello. And you know what's so funny? Year after year, his relationship with me never changed. He was always like an uncle. Every time he saw me, he'd shake my hand with a fold of $100 bill in it. And I've never had a bad habit, fortunately, other than women. But that that's not an addiction. It's going to cost you anything. <laughs> <laughs> but. With that, I just, you know, was blessed and kept on moving with these people. And here I am now, just living life. So what were the rules that you knew to live by in order to keep Frank Costello uh, on your good side? <laughs> Don't lie to me. Be on time and talk to nobody. Well, I'm going to tell you that you actually may have uh, uh, changed my life uh, just by reading your book. And I'm going to tell you why. Because yeah. in your book, you mention about uh, having to be early, right? You were early for a meeting with John Gotti, uh, and, and you're early for meetings uh, through uh, your lessons through Frank Costello. Uh, better right. to be there five minutes early. And, right. uh, you know, I think the average person uh, often tends to be late to things, you know, for one reason or another, and they try to justify it. Yeah. But I love your lesson there. I love that because... Try not to, uh, you know, have to apologize to somebody. Be there on time and don't put yourself in a position, you know, to screw oh, yeah. up. So no, it's, it's been, and that, like you say, it's such a, a a simple lesson, but it really, so many people have appreciated as I moved on in life, I was always on time. And basically, I had sealed envelopes. They were all sealed. I didn't know what was in them. I didn't even want to know. I, after a while, I knew because I'm dropping money here and there and all that. But I was just a messenger. And then when I was 18, I actually became a bona fide messenger and courier registered with the Lloyds of London. Mm. Now, you're talking about really taking precautions here. 
Well, yeah, that is quite a uh, a story of growing up. Now, I want to go back to the uh, polio because a good friend of mine uh, worked for the uh, doctor, Dr. Jonas Salk, who, of course, yeah. uh, invented the polio vaccine. And my friend was Dr. Dennis Waitley, famous in his own right for writing the uh, book, The uh, Psychology of Winning, which went on to become the uh, best-selling uh, self-improvement audio program of all time. So, uh Interestingly, you had five years, uh, which uh, would have broken uh, a lot of people. Now, we had the pandemic recently, <laughs> which people were going bonkers, you know, having to stay at home for a year, let alone oh, five years. And and we didn't have iPhone 13s and all these other things. And you were talking about a transistor radio, right? So, uh, as and of course, nobody would wish polio on anybody or any kind of uh, thing like that. But do you believe that? that uh, became a blessing for you that oh actually God, yeah. it definitely did well you know it's funny that you mentioned jonah so because i was part of that and i i just turned my book into a, a one-man show a musical and my researcher found a picture of me in a full body cast and i became the poster boy for the march of dimes of franklin delano roosevelt wow. and yeah and, and eddie Cantor created wow. it wow so, I mean, when you start, I started this from a book that everybody loved, and then I started doing research, and I hired people. As, as you mentioned, I, I went on to make a lot of movies, fortunately. One of them was Seabiscuit, and the guy who was doing all my research, because it was a period piece, I hired him to do all this research. So I take you chronologically through 80 years of my life with photographs. So when you're just about to doubt me, then there's a picture of me and Marilyn Monroe at Cal Neva, or there's, I have the only picture of Carlo Gambino as a kid and me and him. That's insanity. Because every time, you know, when you, not, that's what my life is about. And and somebody somebody coined a phrase, in fact, I, 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 somebody you might, may like or not like, but I, I, I kind of admire the guy. Mel Gibson read, came to my show in, in uh, California a few weeks ago. I'm doing the same show on a tour. And we were at Herb Alpert's place called Vibrato. And I'm looking at Mel Gibson and sitting across from him is Gene Simmons. And I'm saying, everybody means any kiss. Yeah, <laughs> they're all there. And he got so enamored, read the book, had a friend of mine call me. And he said, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. You are the Forrest Gump of the world. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've had so many different ads, but um, it's been good. Yeah. So um, at the age of 25, you came out of literally nowhere, it seems, and was cast in the original Godfather movie as Sonny Corleone's brother in law, Carlo Rizzi. Right. How did you get that plum role like that? Well, they were the go again. I had somebody read the book to me, and my ego, I wanted to be in the movies. So I figured I could play Michael, I could play Sonny or Carlo. The next thing I know, I'm a man I met downtown called Joe Colombo out of Brooklyn, the Colombo crime family in New York, starts picking in the FBI building. Now, I've been around these guys enough times that I knew it's all about money. So I flew to New York, went to 86th Street to his club. He said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I got an idea. And he just hired a guy called Barry Schlotnick, a young Jewish attorney. Yeah, for the Italian Defamation League, and what's ironic as we speak, 
his son Stuart is my lawyer now today. Mm. I mean, it's this keeps just going. So long story short, I said, Joe, I said, I got an idea where we can make a lot of money. And the only reason he's listening to me, because I've been a hundred places in his company because of Costello and Gambino. You knew I was in some crazy kid off the street. So he said, how are we going to make money? I said, well, <laughs> I think now that you have Barry, let Barry read the script and the book. And what if they make the changes, anything that's bothering you that you think is defaming the Italians, if you change it and get the cooperation for the you know, neighborhoods and all the unions and everything in, in line, he said, well, how are we going to make money if I do that? I said, you're going to ask for the world premiere of every movie in every city the night before it comes out. You can get $200, $300 a ticket. We'll make fortune. So he said, you think you can do that? I said, I don't know. So he looked at Barry. He said, Barry, what do you think? He said, I don't know either. So he said, go ahead and talk for me then. That's when I went to the Gulf of Western building, which is now Trump International. And that's where the media. Yeah, was. Columbus Circle. Yeah. And Charlie Blue Dawn just bought Paramount. This was his first film. And I knew the people he was around in Italy. Nobody knew Blue Dawn was really hooked up. So I knew I could, you know, I have a couple of ins and outs here. So I'm in the, I'm downstairs and they're all coming in. Charlie Blue Dawn, Stanley Jaffe, Bobby Evans was even there, but not Coppola. He wasn't there because he wasn't directing. Yeah. And I said, you guys have a problem in New York. They said, what are you talking about? I said, you have a problem in New York. I could straighten it out. He said, we have no problem. I said, let me tell you something. I just left Joe Colombo. You just did what? I said, I left Joe Colombo. <laughs> and they looked at each other. I said, he wants to meet. He said, you left Joe Colombo and he wants to meet. I said, yeah. He said, will he come here? I said, when do you want him? That's tomorrow, 10 o'clock. I said, you got it. And I left and I walked back down to Madison Avenue where the office was for the league. So I told him, I said, they're going to meet. So okay. I said, do me a favor. Can I suggest something? If we're going to go, who's going? I said, I'm going. Because I wanted to go because I knew where I was going with this. He said, okay, you, Barry, and I. I said, but you know, they're making a mafia movie. I knew Butteras De Chico, one of his guys, a major guy. And, and, and Bougie De Chico he knew about. And Frankie Boy De Chico got blown up later on. Mistakenly, they thought he was Gotti. They killed him. So now I said, and you got to bring some heavies. And he brings a guy called Lenny Montana, who was a wrestler and was a collector for the Colombo family. So we go to this meeting. Lenny Montana winds up playing Luke Obrazzi. I wind up playing Carlo in the movie. <laughs> they fell in love with this guy. But it was a crazy negotiation. And they were ready. They were shaking hands. And I said, Joe, what about me? So he says, oh, yeah, what about him? So Ruddy jumps in, Al Ruddy, the producer, and he says, oh, we'll give him a part. I said, excuse me. I said, Joe, can you tell these people to sit down? He didn't even open his mouth. He raised his hand and went like that. They all sat down. <laughs> I said, I brought these people here. If they okay this, I want a big part. I said, who's playing Sonny? And they told me, I mean, the Michael, they told me, Jimmy Kahn, he's playing Michael. I said, who's playing Sonny? They said, Carmine Caridi, he's in a big play called The Man from the Macho. They thought he should be a big guy. I said, who's playing Carl? They said, well, we didn't get to that part yet. 
So I said, Joe, I want to play Carlo. So he looks at them, he sees playing Carlo. And they're all like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> I said, no, listen, I brought him here. I'm playing Carlo. He jumps in, raises his voice a little bit. I said, he said, he's playing Carlo. I'm telling you he's playing Carlo or I'm out of here. And that's how I got the part. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. I was so crazy. But that's, we can go on for days with stuff like that. It's amazing. Did you have any inkling at that time that The Godfather would become what it is today, like this, one of the most iconic movies ever made? Well, you know what's so funny? I didn't even think the movie was coming out. I didn't care. I'm 25, 26. I got a Bentley with a Chinese stick chauffeur. I'm making a couple of thousand dollars a week already. I just wanted to do it for ego. Mm. And uh, it wound up. There's so many things happened from that movie for me, obviously. But uh, here I am, 46 movies later, about to do my 47th movie. And all big movies. They're not small movies. Any given Sunday, I mean... That 48 movie star, that Pacino again. Even Family Man, I had Brando back. I got Brando 15 million for that film. Hmm. The most money ever made. Who's the most interesting person uh, that you worked with in film and why? I, I think, well, I have to say Brando, because Brando was so generous. Because he was worried about my performance, which I never broke down a script. I never acted. And he went crazy in front of Coppola at the first rehearsal. Fortunately, it was on 119th Street in, in the, up, in, up in Harlem. And I used to go there all the time. So I went up early to say hello to all the guys. I thought Tony Salerno was there, Danny Pagano, Tony Federici, all these real guys. And they said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm here for the rehearsal. This is what rehearsal? The Godfather? I said, yeah. They said, what are you going to do? You're not an actor. Because they knew I was working for, you know, I used to bring overnight loans up to them all the time. I said, I'm playing color. Let's get out of here. So I go into the rehearsal, and I everybody I told I was playing that that part, they all said the same thing. Yeah, get out of here. And I'm saying, I said, if I don't get this part now, I'm destroyed. My 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 whole credibility in the mob is gone. <laughs> and Brando, when they brought him in, said, nobody have eye contact with him, nobody approach him, because all these young thespians like Pacino, all these other, plus the old actors, they all love Brando as like the icon. So we have the rehearsal, and he comes over to me. It's about 45 minutes in the rehearsal. He says, you're a big TV actor. I said, no. He says, you got a big movie coming out. I said, no. He says, well, you're not on Broadway. I know everybody on Broadway. I said, you're right again. Is this a quiz show? He said, who'd you study with? I said, study what? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> no Lee Strasberg. <laughs> no. No Stella Adler. None of those people. <laughs> And he called Coppola over and he said, Francis, you got to rethink this part. And I'm saying to myself, well, here's another guy who's going to get me fired. So I didn't know a protocol. I said, Francis, go over there a minute. Now, this is the whole immediate cast. There's like 20 something people sitting around this table. When I say go over there, he moves and goes. The whole room, you could hear a pin drop. So now they told me not to look at Brando. I put my arm around Brando. I said, come over here a minute. I wanted to walk him in the back. I knew there was no games going on during the day. I said, let me tell you something, Mr. Brown, though. All due respect, I know who you are. But you get me fired. Listen to me close. You get me fired. I will suck on your heart. You will bleed out here right now. He stepped back. I don't know if he's going to call a copy. I know what he's going to do. He says to me, 
that was brilliant. You can't do that. He was acting. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's that, crazy. Was, that was classic. Uh, so anyone else come to mind that uh, in all those movies that uh, fascinated you and you respected and know, learned later from? On, I mean, it got to be, it was a, a joke for me. I mean, I, I wanted to meet Tony Curtis because I saw him in something like it hot. Oh, Bob. yeah. Classic. It's out on Broadway now. Yeah. And I, I'm used when Costello went home, I'd go to either I'd go to St. Patrick's Cathedral, say my prayers, I made a novena, and then I walk over to Paramount, which how ironic. I'm in business with Paramount right now. I, if you go online or your listeners go online, go to Quarterly on Fine Italian. I own the rights to all of that, even Brando throughout the world. I got liquor, everything like that. So he says, and I, now I'm going to Paramount watching this. Then I make a movie. He's playing Louis, Louis Lepke. I'm playing an album Anastasia. Tony Anastasia, his brother, was my godfather for, for confirmation. This is how crazy my life is. And uh, so, but I I love Tony. Tony was like, you know, an iconic character. Could do comedy, do everything. He's brilliant. Well, I'll tell you, your story gets better and better. Uh, I'm pretty fascinated. And, uh, you know, we can go on for days uh, because the next thing that I read about in your book is how you were kind of the the, uh, the king of uh, Sin City there for a while. Uh, you had oh, uh, Johnny's uh, Russo's State Street, which was the place at the time for celebrities and let's say colorful characters. Uh, yeah. So what can you tell us about how that came about and what actually went on in the nightclub and uh, who Frank would it? Well, first of all, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis, and Frank Sinatra opened it for me. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, they were there. And once that went out, people would line up every day. And that's who came. I came up with the idea of serving food, gourmet food, from 6 at night to 6 in the morning. Because if anybody knows Vegas, after midnight, you don't need something in the coffee shop. So I built a most elegant club and ran it for 10 years and uh, was gangbusters. I mean, it was crazy. And everybody was told to come, and they did. Every celebrity came in, everybody hung out, and it was the place to be. There was lines all the time outside. So you had uh, a very infamous uh, thing happen in the club, uh, and uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how that all came about, because uh, that is a story for itself, another uh, best-selling movie. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. Unfortunately, I had, like I said, all these house accounts with the high rollers. The casinos would send people to me, and they had they pick up their checks. And I have a guy that your audience and most people know, Steve Sharippa, first from The Sopranos, yep, and now Blue Bloods. He was going to UNLV and working the door of my club in the big tuxedo. He looked great. Amazing how people started. So I called him from my bar where I used to sit on a perch overlooking everything, the casino, the disco, and all that. And I said, who's the guy on seven? He said, I don't know, boss. I said, who sent him? They said, Caesars. I said, how's he rated? They said, five. That means anything, new, and they're going to pick up the check. So I said, send him a bottle of Louis XIII, bottle of Cristal, some pâtés, a caviar, and all this. And next thing I know, he gets the Cristal bottle, breaks it, and stabs his date in the face with it. 
So I pick up the phone again. I said, Steve, get to seven. He said, I ain't going over there, boss. That guy's nuts. I said, what do you think I hired you for? Look at the size here. So I went over there only to find out that this guy was not a customer. I mean, he was a customer season, but he was the underboss of Pablo Escobar, Lorenzo Morales. And he was there doing business, major business, heroin business. Now, you didn't know that till no, after. No, I knew the, nothing about him. Right. So you only knew that after the oh, yeah. rest of the story is complete. Go ahead. <laughs> so I said, you hear these sirens? I said, I don't need any problem. I don't know who you're with. Get out of here. I got to take this lady to the hospital. Thank God he missed her eye. The, this, the, this circle of the, the bottle was totally around her, and her eye was okay, but she was still bleeding. He said, no, mom. I said, no, mom. Where are you from? He said, you don't want to know. But I didn't know he had the bottleneck yet in his hand. He spins around, and he goes to my throat. I was agile enough. I leaned back. He cuts me along my jawline, 81 stitches. Oh. And now my chin is actually hanging. I'm saying, well, this guy's going to kill me. So I had to defuse him. I said, look what you did to my shirt. This is a Sea Island cotton shirt. I waited six months for this. And he's looking at me like saying, wait a minute. I just, he didn't know where he caught me, but he saw me bleeding. And this guy's worried about a shirt because I just I had, to, <laughs> I had to get my hand on my gun. I knew, if, you know, I, I needed a diversion. Fortunately, it worked. I put the gun right between his eyes. I said, now get out of here. We don't need any problems. He said, F you. I said, really? I put two right between his eyes. The blood's coming out of the hole of his head, down his nose. He's still looking at me, and I'm saying, what the hell is this? So I put three, the extra, there was a five-shot Derringer. I put the other three in his heart, and four, he fell down. The, all the doors broke loose. Everybody was in there. And I went to Sunrise Hospital, which was right down the street. And they came in in coots. The detective said, yeah, I got good news and bad news. I said, what's the good news? The good news, the guy's dead. The bad news, he worked for Pablo Escobar. <laughs> and he's a Marielito. I said, what the hell is that? He said, well, they're going to avenge the death of this guy. And they're going to kill your pets, your neighbors, your kids, everybody before you. And that's when I fly to see John Gotti, who hated me, but I knew he was doing business with him. So that's another story. <laughs> mm. Oh, my goodness. So you um, have your second book you just put out in December, uh, The Sixth Family, you know, the Johnny Russo novel book one. Right. And you started off uh, with some very interesting places uh, like the Subway Inn, the famous oh place God. there right on. Yeah. Second Avenue and right by the uh, 59th Street Bridge. <laughs> right across <laughs> from Bloomingdale's. Right across from Bloomingdale's, <laughs> yeah. Lexington, uh, it was amazing. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, if you want to talk about a place that looks like a joint, that, that looked like a joint, but right. uh, certainly infamously popular. And uh, then you mention uh, someone that you meet by the name of Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> Tell us yeah. more about that. Well, I got to meet Marilyn Earlier on, we, that that us starting going there was just because of the relationship I was able to cultivate with her. And we both had similar beginnings, which is very, that's how it all happened. It wasn't that, that she was attracted to me. I was like 17 and she was 31, and she's a movie star. The fact that the, both of us at 12, I was in Bellevue, she was in an orphanage in California, and she looked out the window 
and saw the, the Warner Brothers Tower and said, I'm going to be an actress. When I finally got the window bed in Bellevue, I saw the Empire State Building. The first time I saw a high-rise building. Because down on Mulberry Street, they're all six, seven, eight stories. That's it. So that's how it started. And Costello basically told me to look out for her. She was a guest, most people don't know, for a year at the Waldorf. Because she was trying to get away from the Xanax. And on the weekends, he told me to look in on her. And one thing led to the next. And we became very good friends for four years till she died. I was with her the last weekend up in Calneva just to be their eyes and ears to hear what was going on over there. But terrible thing. But this new book reveals something that's more interesting that I didn't know about, which is um, unbelievable that we have a 63-year-old daughter together. Mm. <laughs> you do? Yes. <laughs> Name Pearl. How come that's not uh, as well-known as it uh, could be? You know what? I, I don't want to capitalize. Like, all the, even my own kids' names are not in the – the real name is not in the book. What I'm doing is what I'm doing. I just found out about Pearl. I knew she existed, and she wanted her autonomy, and she has it. And now she's a, a mother, so that she made me now. I I had up until this time – I had like 12 grandchildren. Now I got 15. I had two daughters. Now I have three daughters and nine sons. And uh, I'll never give her up. Believe me. I've, I've only spoke to her on the phone once or twice. And I'll I'll leave it at that. I mean, to me, I have some famous kids. I mean, I have a son that's a prince. I'm, you know, he's Princess Pondotowska's son. His grandmother's Princess Anna from Romania. I mean, I, I the women I've dated, fortunately, are... Some of them are iconic and very wealthy, but I blame it on my boat. Oh, I respect that a lot. So, Johnny, you've had you know a, a life uh, not only uh, expand eighty years, but uh, you have a life that <laughs> seems to be uh, like you could put two hundred and forty years of somebody else's uh, world into into what you've done in those eighty years for sure. And so, do you have any regrets of anything that's happened in your life and? Uh, what would you do differently? Nothing. You know, it's so funny. Wow, I like that answer. No, to me, I, I, there was a reason for everything. And um, look at me today, what I have. I mean, I'm writing books now at 80 years old. Like most of my friends, I have a hip replacement. I'm writing, <laughs> I'm writing books. <laughs> and I have no ailments. It's, What's the uh, secret to that? I guess, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I eat well. I watch my weight. I still weigh 155. I, I don't do drugs. I, I drink a lot of red wine, which I think, you know, I, I look at red wine as, as a, being a detoxin, not a not, not getting intoxic. It's And uh, I don't know. I sleep 10, 12 hours a day from my doctors, Dr. Blomquist and Dr. Jonas Salk. They told me, spend time in bed, you'll heal. Be on. Mm. And I, I, I still, I really... When I get when I'm up, my twelve hours are totally loaded, and when I rest, I rest. So, what are you passionate about, Johnny? Like, what actually gets you up in the morning every day with purpose besides writing these books? I love the challenge of life every day. I mean, to, to you and I touched on it. Now we're both looking to get into motivational speaking. I think I'm here and successful, and I need to share it. So now I'm creating. I, I just 
formed the 501c corporation and, and one of my companies out of florida because i want to not support politicians or warfare or any of that i want to give you know 10 i'm going to start with ten thousand dollar scholarships for 10 kids a year give a hundred thousand dollars and see how that goes i want to rekindle the frank sinatra tribute to the LaGuardia School of Arts because he mentored me. He was my only singing teacher. He spent a lot of time. He baptized my son Luciano. And now the family, for some reason, let that go. And I feel like, you know, he helped me. He opened State Street, like you mentioned earlier. So I wanted to see if I could pick up where he left off and help some kids. And I want to see what I really want to see if I could become well-known author <laughs> well i have a feeling that you will because you certainly uh aced the the movie career <laughs> so this is a piece of cake after that uh and you you know you did mention to me off the air that you do want to uh, get out there and speak a little bit more and inspire younger people uh, so what positive and inspiring messages uh will those kids expect to hear when you get on a stage speaking in front of them well, I think that yes, you can. I mean, the last sentence in my first book was "Yes, you can," and I believe you can, and that's what I want them to believe. And I always say, I say to my own kids, my grandchildren, don't pick something that you can't do, because that's only going to disappoint you and put you in, a, in a, a worse depression. Know what your limits are, put the time in, and and do it. Stay focused. So I want to ask you questions. I was heading from the airport yesterday, and I was in a uh, car service. And I asked the driver, well, what do you do? Anything you do besides driving the car? And he says, yeah. He says, uh, I just uh, graduated school. I said, really? And uh, what was the subject? He said, well, I want to be an actor. Now, oh. I'm talking to him. He's a little bit monotone. You know, he doesn't sound like he's that enthusiastic, even when he said he's going to be an actor. So the question is, you know, am I to judge or is anybody else to judge for somebody else to to tell them, you know, hey, you know, I don't know if you've got it. So if you have this dream in your head, uh, despite what anybody else uh, tells you, should you be going for that dream? And well, even the that, odds, what are the odds of being an actor and oh actually God, having yeah. having what you had happen, you know? Well, now it, it can happen. I hate to say it and I didn't want to disillusion anybody. But if I was in that car and that guy said to me, all I would have said to encourage him was make sure you get a great teacher who has credits and that you're not just spending money. Because mm. like you said, you can want to do anything you want, but you can't, you can't. Yeah. So how does somebody uh, break the odds, you know, besides that? I mean, you're, you're talking about where maybe, I don't know, one in every, you know, a couple of thousand or thousands uh, will even hit it modestly well in the acting profession. Um, what are the secrets? Well, there are no secrets. And I think, you know, it's luck. And I think that limited window now, I mean, look at the new stars now, very far and few between. There's newcomers that come and go. And if somebody asked me my advice about becoming an actor, I told my, my some of my kids, that. I said, you know, you become an actor when you belong to the best country club in the world. You have no wants in your life. That should be your goal as a hobby not realistically <laughs> as a profession. It's ridiculous. The odds are against you already. 
I mean, that's what I would say. And I've, I've said it. I've said it to my couple of my older kids. So have maybe a plan B? <laughs> I think I have a plan B that you're very successful. (laughs) Now there's also a theory that says to burn the boats behind you uh, and just go all out. And then unless you uh, go all out and, and, uh, you know, burn those boats, then you're not serious. What do you think about that thought? Well, I I mean, again, because we all, I mean, I think 90% or 99% of this audience listening to us is going to have to agree. I would switch tracks. To be an actor, and see, I I approached the right way. I didn't care, but when you care and you don't make it, I just mm. did a movie. You know, I did a movie, and then they asked me to do Godfather Two, and then I went on to make Sea Biscuit, Any Given Sunday, Striptease. I, I made all big movies besides, but it was again staying in the business and being lucky, and and I've made good friends. Pacino stayed my friend. And then when we did Any Given Sunday, that had 38 movie stars in it. And everybody <laughs> wanted to be in it. How did you memorize all the lines and master your craft without having the Lee Strasberg's type <laughs> mentors uh, backing you or the Stella Adlers? I had probably the best acting teacher in the world. And he asked to teach me. Dick Smith was Marlon Brando's makeup artist for him to turn Marlon Brando into an old man took three hours every day. Wow. And Marlon Brando would call and he said, get that kid in here. And I'd spend the time with him going through lines and studied. One thing about me, if I get focused and want to do it, I'm writing shows now and getting, you know, I, my son up in Niagara Falls room at 1500 people. I got two standing ovations. I wrote the whole show, 80 minutes, jokes, lines, music, and sang. So, you know, but that's touchable. That's not, you know, you have to, again, I go back to my first thought. Acting, don't go near it. I mean, I'll tell anybody. It's too hard. It's really, I mean, do something realistic. Well, I just think you did give us a secret. You just used the word focus. You know, what you focus on, you can actually make happen. You know, but if you're, uh, half into something, you know, uh, or you do it once every blue moon, um, it's uh, going to be a lot harder to happen. But if you put your your full mind and your full focus and your belief system into it, and it sounds like that's what you, you're you doing. You, you put your whole heart and soul. When you, when you get a role, you put your whole belief system into the fact that I could make this happen because I believe that uh, the mind is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if you go into that role saying, oh my God, uh, I'm in a movie with, with um, Marlon Brando, and I'm in a movie with Jimmy Kahn, and I'm in a movie with Al Pacino. Who am I? Uh, you're going to have a hard time. How did you uh, actually be in a movie with those three uh, people and say to yourself, I belong there? Well, I'm going to tell you why. And this may sound very corny to you. I believe in God. I survived five years watching 2,300 kids die. Somebody has a plan for me. I don't care who it is. But he's pushing me along, and whatever you believe in, it could be a monkey or whatever. But you just said the key word. If you're taking it on, stay focused and give yourself enough ability to learn one way or the other or bring in people. Everybody has taught me. Like Sinatra's my only singing teacher. I went to his house, and he threw me in a pool. I said, what? I don't want to learn to swim. I want to learn to sing. 
is you learn how to sing when you learn how to breathe. And he submerged me every day, timing me to open my lungs up. You're not singing notes. You got to take the baby steps. So now if I was that guy in the car thinking about it now, who wants to be an actor, what are you driving a car for? Why don't you go become a stagehand? Get close to your profession so you could be studying and watching actors who are working. Get a job on Broadway. Mm. Build the building blocks and surround yourself to see. You may open your mind up and say, I really can't do this. But That's great advice. I mean, just you know, get get around the the profession in any way that you can, even even being an intern, you know, whatever you need right. to do to learn the craft, you know, uh, and, and give yourself the edge. No, I, I, I didn't take shortcuts. I went in and sat and watched and did. But um, but I'm blessed. I mean, I am so blessed. I don't I, I there's no formula to become a Johnny Russo. It's like crazy. I've been stabbed, run over, I've been all over the place. It's like nuts. I guess everything's easy from there, right? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, what, what you just said. It was easy from when I was wheeled out of the hospital. From that day on, I was 12 years old. I felt there's nothing I can't do if I put my mind to it. And that was it. Well, there's not many kids that age who have that self-confidence. You know, most people, I think, if anything, lack the self-confidence at that age. I know. Yeah, and look at look how diversified they were. All these toys and gadgets they have that that you know take them to a different place every five minutes. So, what made you honestly uh, think that Johnny Russo had what it would take to do all these things, knowing that here you are, five years you're spending in a in a ward, you know, by yourself that that can beat most people down. How did you? How did it all come out? I'm uh, I'm still perplexed by how you had that strength of mind. I had the strength of mind first. Again, by taking one step out of a time and literally taking one step. I was a cripple. I couldn't walk. So being wheeled out, now I have another opportunity. How am I going to survive here? So I took a job in a bakery shop. And you're going to say, why a bakery shop? Well, I couldn't go to gyms. I knew nothing about a gym. But I was sleeping with coal ovens, no, no humidity in the air because of the flour. I slept on the flower bags. I'm mixing dough. I'm doing things that I saw my grandmother doing and working out with it. So I was building my body subconsciously to get to the next level of even just walking and standing up straight, which took another two years. But what did I do? I didn't cry about it. I said, how am I going to use this? I met a guy called Leo Rabinowitz on Delancey Street. My grandfather used to go there to get pencils for his club. And he was so animated over these new ballpoint pens that just came out. And my grandfather didn't want the pens. He wanted his pencils. The next day I went. And I'm saying to myself, hold it. This is something I can do. I'm still gimped in my left hand. This can help me sell pens. People are going to feel sorry for me. And I used it. I built an ear. I mean, you couldn't believe what I was making in, in the 50s. Selling ballpoint pens. I'd buy for 10 cents, get a dollar, get $2. That's why after I exhausted the whole area downtown, the Wall Street and all those people working, giving me change in an envelope, I took the train, Canal Street, and got off 59th Street. I got off at the Parkside. I had never been up there. I get out, and I see the Sherry Netherlands. And it was a weekday, but it looked like everybody was going to church. They were all dressed beautiful. 
And that's what I said. I'm going to be here. And you know what's so funny? I'm talking to you two blocks from where I used to sell ballpoint pens. Oh, yeah. wow. Isn't that something, huh? Is that, I mean, and <laughs> I, I, I retraced those steps all the time and just said, look what I did. And that's, that encouraged me to go to the next level. How am I writing books? People keep telling me, you tell great stories. You should write a book. Or you should, <laughs> it's, 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 you know, listen. And again, what I said, if you think you can do it, focus and try it. But don't let anybody see you fail. Mm, I like that. I like that. So what do you expect people to learn and get out of? Uh, what are you hoping people get out of the Sixth Family uh, your new book. Well, this basically is, it, it's telling you more of my life story, which I can, am able to tell and I want to share. And that is a story. I mean, it, it covers so many. We like, I mean, his, Pat's waiver, like you said, it's, it's like you can't put the book down. You, you keep, it's a page turner. And people get mad at me. I say, well, I lost sleep last night. I couldn't stop reading your book. But that's a tremendous compliment. But this book here is just, again, it's a message saying and showing another facet of my stone and what I accomplished. But it was determination, staying focused, and I did it. No excuses. Nope. You did what you had to do. What was you, What is maybe your famous uh, f favorite story in the book? You know, they were, it, it's, I, I just pointed out it's a, a part of my life. I'm I'm happy to be a part of all of that and share it. So I can't say, oh, this was the best thing that ever happened to me. I don't know if the best thing that ever happened to me has happened yet. So I'm very... Mm, oh, I like that. That's powerful. <laughs> oh, that's, <laughs> that's my yet attitude. To come. I get out of bed tomorrow and I'll say, what's going to happen today? I'm open for, I'm open for all suggestions. <laughs> so a lot of people are going to remember you for a lot of things. Obviously, some people are going to remember you from your movies. What would you like Johnny Russo to be remembered for? It's very simple. He's a nice guy. Wow. That's powerful. That's all. It's so simple. I don't want to be anything. I, who I am, I am. I apologize when I have to. I don't curse. I don't do things as, you know, it's just try to live. I try to treat people the way I want to be treated. I don't lie. I don't tell stories. I don't care. To me, it's my life. I'm having fun with it. I'm not going to burden anybody with my lifestyle. If you don't like me, great. Next. <laughs> well, I would like to suggest to my listeners if you, you want to have a page turner pick up the six family a johnny russo novel and go back and then pick up his first book hollywood godfather my life in the movies and the mob and i'm sure you you will be as intrigued as i am thank you johnny this has been a great fun interview Thank you. I appreciate your time. I want you to come on my podcast, you know, Hollywood Godfather podcast. Done. Let's we're do up, it. We're up three three years already. Well, what I admire about you is that you want to go at your age at 80 years old, where a lot of guys would be lying back in hammocks. You want to go out there and make a difference for the youth. And you're even putting up money, uh, 10,000 bucks at a time to do that. That says that, you know, this guy, he is a nice guy. So thank you, Johnny. Thank you. I appreciate that.
If you would like to inquire about having Eli motivate your team, speak at your event, or coach you personally for massive success, email themotivationshow at gmail.com. That's themotivationshow at gmail.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.